the last time that we were together, we were looking at Genesis 31, and we sort of got through the whole chapter, uh, kind of, but uh, we didn't really get to deal with a, a whole lot of uh, important concepts in the latter part of the chapter because of time. So I thought I would take some time and cover some of the things that we just didn't have time to go over uh, in class. In, in Jacob's life, we have uh, we've seen a man who is, well, let's just say he, he's not too faithful. Uh, so far in his life, there have been moments when when Jacob did the right thing and exhibited trust in the, in the word of the Lord. But but we've also seen that more often than not, Jacob has acted like like the heel grabber that he is. Uh, he is a man that is always looking out for number one. Um, and of course, you know, lest we be too hard on Jacob, you got to also recognize that he's pretty much a walking contradiction, just like we are. Uh, he is the bearer of God's promise, and he is the recipient recipient of God's blessing. Um, and just like his father and grandfather before him, he is certainly capable of doing things that are overtly sinful and you know just really downright stupid. Uh, and, and each and every time that we see this happen, God steps in to protect his promise and fulfill his word, just as he did with Abraham and Isaac. And we've seen that played out over and over again in Genesis. Um, really, that should give you, it should give you a great peace and assurance. Our, our God will be faithful to his promises no matter what. So in the, in the beginning of chapter 31, we, we went over that in, in class. We saw Jacob realize that he has fallen out of favor with Laban and his family, you know, because Jacob's flocks have been increasing and Laban's have been decreasing. And, and everybody involved, including Laban, uh, Laban's sons, Jacob, Jacob's wives, they, they, they all recognize that it's because of the Lord blessing Jacob that all this has happened. Well, Jacob realizes that you know, he, he might be in trouble on the home front, and God appears to him in a dream and, and tells him that it's time to go home. Uh, he is to leave Laban's house and return to the land of promise and uh, return to his father, Isaac. Uh, we saw that Jacob didn't, you know, he didn't exactly exhibit the greatest faith in obeying God's command. The, the first thing he did was call his wives to him, if you remember, and, and, he, and he tried to convince them that they, you know, that leaving was the right thing and they needed to leave. Rather than simply declaring that this is what God had told him, he, he sounded more to me like he was trying to get their permission or trying at least to get them on his side. Uh, yeah, in, in all fairness, there's really some question about whether Jacob was just being smart in these actions that he took or whether he, you know, whether he uh, should have just told them what was going to happen. I, I don't see it really as an issue worth fighting over. But uh, what compounds the problem uh, that Jacob's is about to face is that he, he waits until Laban is gone shearing sheep and then he sneaks off toward home without telling Laban what God had said. Um, and, and then, you know, for some reason, uh, we can't really be sure. Uh, on the way out the door, Rachel steals Laban's household god, his, his little idol. Uh, some people think she was a closet idolater. Others think it was just a valuable piece that she wanted. Uh, you, I mean, you could also say that she knew how important it was to Laban. She just wanted to stick it to him. Uh, whatever the reason, it really upset Laban. And then we saw that Laban chased him down. And the only thing that kept Laban from killing Jacob was the fact that God appeared to him in a dream and told him basically you know, don't overstep your authority here. Uh, and so 
Once again, even in the face of Rachel's theft, which was clearly sinful, even if you want to argue the other parts, God stepped in and protected his promise to Jacob. He wouldn't allow Laban to harm Jacob because Jacob had been promised course to be a great nation and God had told him in Bethel that 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 God would be with him and prosper him bring him back to the land so once again God intervenes to protect his promise even when you know you can make the case that Jacob was uh, being unfaithful you certainly could make the case that there was sin in the camp uh, because uh, Rachel what she had done and if you if you know your Bible you'll know that just that sin being in the camp uh, uh, caused God to bring judgment down upon Israel when Achan stole something from Jericho, uh, but that's in that's in Joshua. So uh, we saw we saw Laban question Jacob about why he left, and then Jacob reveals that he snuck away because he was afraid. Uh, he was afraid of what Laban would do. So let's pick up right here. Because even though uh, we got a little past that point uh, in chapter 31 when we were talking together, there are some important things here that we, we, we just weren't able to look at because of the time. So let's start in verse 30. It says, And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. This is Laban speaking. Uh, but why did you steal my gods? Uh, Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Jacob answers Laban's first question, why did you sneak away, by saying he was afraid. And then Laban says, you know, I know you wanted to go home to your father's house, but why did you steal my my God? Um, and now, now I'm sure that is that this accusation, it, it probably sounded a little crazy to Jacob. Maybe he thought Laban was just being Laban, you know, and trying to uh, trump up some charge so that he would feel justified in killing everybody. Um, but the point is that he didn't know Rachel had stolen the God. I mean, his most favorite wife, uh, he didn't know what she had done. So Jacob, who is probably, he's probably boiling over by this point. He makes this rash statement that could really cost him his, uh, his most prized possession. That's his prized wife, Rachel. He says, if you find your little God among any of my people, then that person should be put to death. And of course he he didn't know that he was sentencing his beloved wife to death. And what would have happened if Re if Laban would have found his idol with his youngest daughter, Rachel? Do you think he would have dropped to his knees and said, oh, I can't kill my daughter. I'm sorry for the way that I've acted. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. Laban's already shown us that that really he's only out for himself and he, he's going to sacrifice anybody who gets in the way of him prospering. Laban has already admitted more than once that he is he's been blessed by Jacob's presence there because Jacob Jacob's God is with him and and he never even considers seeking after this God who has blessed because of Jacob's presence. Uh, he's never even considered seeking after this God that's demonstrated his power. He doesn't want the true God. He's he's just in love with the blessings that God has provided. Uh, no, Laban is most likely if he finds that idol, he's going to he's going to go through with the deal. Uh, he's going to kill whoever whoever has it. That's what I think anyway. But then we have what I consider uh, the, just the funniest picture 
I mean, it's just hilarious to me. In verse 33 through 35, it says, So Laban went into Jacob's tent. Remember, he's looking for this idol. He went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household god and put and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. So really (laughs) the only person in the whole story that knows what's going on is Rachel. Uh, Jacob doesn't know that she's sitting on Laban's God and neither does anyone else. Now, now, now picture this for a moment. Laban is searching for his God. He's looking for the God that he prays to. (laughs) <laughs> and worships. He's looking for the God that he that he reveres as sovereign, that he is he is uh, trusting for blessing and, and riches and whatever he's trusting for. This God has been stolen. Now, now make sure you grasp the irony in all this. Laban's God, who he devotes his life to, has been kidnapped by this this young woman. Uh, that doesn't seem like a very powerful God to me, but it gets worse. Laban's God after being kidnapped by a woman, is being sat on by the menstruating woman. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So look at the picture we have here. Jacob's God appears to Laban in a dream as his army's advancing on Jacob and with the intent to do them harm. And and Jacob's God says to Laban, son, you you better not overstep your authority right here. I'm going to take you out. Uh, You don't know you you don't know what's going on and you aren't big enough in the britches to think that you're going to thwart my will. And Laban definitely gets the message. We're going to see that here in a minute. Then on the other hand, you have Laban's God. And I'm using air quotes there, uh, who is really so helpless and powerless. He can't get himself out from under a lady's saddle while she's menstruating upon him. Uh, I don't know how much more graphic a picture you need to see. It reminds me of Elijah poking fun at the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel saying, yell louder, your God may be out using the bathroom or something like that, relieving himself. (coughs) So what we have here is not just Laban versus Jacob. We have the true God and his authoritative word shown in light of a pitiful little idol with no power to do anything. And and really, that is always the picture that idolatry gives us. Today, you probably don't bow down and worship a little golden idol or statue, but all of mankind everywhere worships something. And if that something is anything other than the true and living God, it is nothing but a powerless, helpless lie. People worship money, free time, uh, people worship sports and fame, people worship their families, their jobs. All of these things are, are, you know, in some senses, actually good things in proper perspective. But but as God, as a God that gives satisfaction and peace, purpose, meaning that is actually in control of events, they're, they're really nothing more than useless idols that don't have the power to help you in any way. So this is now the last straw. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Jacob has 20 years of being pushed around and cheated, built up in him. And God has now placed Jacob in a position where he is going to have to trust him. Jacob, this is Jacob's uh, uh, spewing of finally just getting all this off off his chest is going to uh, is going to be one of the steps in God pushing Jacob to where he needs to be. Uh, Jacob's insides just come boiling out, and he lets loose, telling Laban everything that's on his mind. Uh, remember, Laban is still standing there 
there with his army. And Jacob is standing there with his wives and children and flock. But at this point, you know, it just doesn't matter. Jacob tears into Laban. Uh, First, uh, he defies Laban to produce any evidence that Jacob has stolen from him. Verse 36 and 37 say, Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household gods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. He's mad and he's had enough. But but you and I know that if Laban would have been just a little more persistent, he could have certainly found the idol that Rachel stole. It was it was simply God's providence that he didn't. This this would be an entirely different conversation if he had found that idol. But I hope you see that God used even the theft of Rachel to push Jacob to this point. He is pushing Jacob toward a confrontation we're going to see in the next chapter with God himself. We'll see that in the next chapter is when he wrestles with God. Uh, after he refutes Laban's accusation of theft, he says, produce it. Show me what you what, what I've stole. It all comes spilling out. Jacob reaches back and he brings out all of Laban's sins against him. 38 through 40 says, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. Uh, what was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. Uh, from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day. The heat consumed me and the cold of night and my sleep fled from my eyes. Jacob uh, wasn't really living in the lap of luxury in Laban's house. He, uh, he, I mean, he suffered greatly and was loyal and honest with Laban's property. Um, all, all those things he brings out here. The fact that Jacob was honest with anything really is a miracle in and of itself. You, you can see how Jacob's personality is changing. Uh, but then he goes even deeper into the past, showing how Laban started all this mess in the first place by deceiving Jacob into marrying Lee. Verse 41 and 42 say, These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages. 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. There are a few important things right here that we weren't able to touch on in class. Of course, Jacob clearly tells Laban that it wasn't his kindness or goodness that allowed Jacob to have everything. He says, if God would not have been with me, you would have taken everything from me. And we know that's true from our interactions with who Laban is. But here is the here is really the perfect contrast between Jacob's God and Laban's God, who, again, happens to be being bled on under Rachel's saddle at the moment. Uh, but there is there's something very interesting here about what Jacob calls his God. Uh, He says the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. Uh, He's going to use this term again at the end of the chapter, but this is the only place in the Bible that God is called the fear of Isaac, the fear of someone. Uh, Our God, the God of Jacob, commands fear and reverence because of his power. He is Uh, He is the God who he halted Abraham's hand as he was about to sacrifice Isaac, his son. He is the God who promised a nation and a land to Isaac and Jacob. He's the God who intervened in time and space repeatedly 
to protect his promise from outside enemies and from his people's own sin that threatened it. Uh, Jacob's God has turned circumstances on their head to bless Jacob despite all of Laban's attempt to keep him from prospering. Uh, Laban changed his wages 10 times. We take that to mean as the uh, the you know the animals were producing spotted or speckled whichever one was his wages Laban would come and say you know what now you're just going to take the spotted you're going to give me back all the all the striped or the speckled or whatever it was he changed his wages and whenever he changed those wages God would change the kind of animals that were born so Jacob would prosper uh, now after all this <clears throat> Laban has race to catch Jacob in order to kill him. It is the God of Jacob who appeared to Laban and warned him of the consequences of messing with the with really the very promise of the Lord. Yes, Jacob's God is rightly called the fear of Isaac. And Laban's pitiful little God is nothing more now than a feminine napkin. Uh, but after even after all this, Laban knows there is nothing that he can do. Uh, but even then, he still refuses to acknowledge that Jacob is right. In verse 43, it says, Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters, he's looking around at the family that's around Jacob, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. And then he says, But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? He, he knows that he can't do anything. The fear of Isaac has now become the fear of Laban. So, so Laban proposes that he and Jacob make a covenant. That's his solution. This, this often seems, it, it comes out of the blue, really. It, and to, you know, to be honest, it, it doesn't make much sense to a lot of people, but it's going to be clear in a moment. They're, they're going to make a covenant, one that's commonly called the Mitzvah covenant. And the point is that that Laban is going to call God, Jacob's God, to witness that Jacob will not harm his daughters. That's one stipulation. And then both parties are going to promise really never to cross into each other's territory again. In verse 44, let me just read 44 through 47. It says, come now, let us make a covenant. He says, you know, all this stuff you see here is mine, but really there's nothing I can do. So come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha. That's a mouthful. But, but. Uh, Jacob called it Galid. Now, the, these two terms, Jagar Sahadutha, is Aramaic for heap of witness. That's what he called it, a heap of witness. And Jacob uses the Hebrew term, Galid, which is same thing, heap of witness. And so there are two stipulations in this covenant. The first is that, that Jacob's not going to harm Laban's daughters. He calls God to be witness to the fact when, when Laban and Jacob are apart from each other. And he, the, the two uh, later, we're going to see they're not going to cross into each other's territory. But this stipulation that they are not going to harm each other, he calls God to witness it in verse 48. He says, Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch 
between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Now, the word mizpah means watch post. So he's saying that this will be a a watch post of God. Basically, Laban's saying, even if I'm not around, if you harm my daughters, God will see it and he will punish you. Now, there is some there's some very strange teachings concerning the Mizpah covenant. Today, most people take the Mizpah to mean um, kind of a, I guess you could call it an emotional bond between two people who are apart from each other. Uh, they sell little pendants. You've probably seen them before and really didn't know they were called the Mizpah Covenant. Little pendants in the shape of a coin that are cut in down the middle in like a zigzag pattern. And uh, one friend will take one side and another will take the other piece with the word Mizpah written on it. Uh, this has come to mean something like, may the Lord watch over you and me when we are apart. But I, I really can't stress enough that this is not what is meant in Genesis 31. The whole context of the cha- chapter stresses just the enmity, the, the strife between Jacob and Laban. Laban does not have a change of heart right here all of a sudden and say, why can't we be friends? Uh, the covenant they make together is not one of, of two friends asking God to bind their hearts together while they're, while they're apart. Laban is, Laban is establishing this covenant to ensure that Jacob is punished if he harms his daughters. It's almost like a curse being called down upon him. God is going to, to make you honor this covenant. And the other part of the covenant, the other stipulation, is not that God will watch over them until they are reunited like some bad love novel. Uh, they are, they're never going to be reunited because the covenant they make stipulates that they won't cross this watch post that they've set to do each other harm. And that's what, that's what wants to happen right here. Remember, Laban has chased him down with the intent of harming him. And now Jacob has blown up in Laban's face. And so really it's not, some people focus on to do harm. Like we can cross over as long as we're in love, but we're not going to cross over to do each other harm. I don't think that's the sense here because both of them right now are seething. They're burning uh, with anger with each other. And so verse 51 and 52 say, Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap in the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to, to you, and you will not pass over the heap and this pillar to me to do harm. Did you notice that little thing to do harm at the end was only on Jacob's part? Let me read it again. Look at it. I hope you're looking at it in your own Bible. In verse 51 and 52, it says, Laban said to Jacob, this is Laban's words, see this heap and this pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness and this is what it witnesses to that I will not pass over this heap to you. Period. You could end it right there. And the other part is, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. So Laban is, I mean, think about it. Laban has chased this guy down. He's with this, his big, huge family, his servants and his donkeys and his sheep and his cattle and, you know, all his, all his flocks, <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, he knows that he's going to have to, he, he, he's going to have to, uh, let him go. God has told him, you know, be careful what you do right here. This is my man. And where is he going? I mean, it's no surprise. He's going home to his father. That's what Laban had already said. Well, who is Isaac? 
You know, remember Isaac, inheritor of Abraham's people and Abraham's clan? What does he think is going to happen after he lets Jacob go? He thinks all of a sudden, well, Jacob's going to be coming back. And he's going to be coming back not with sheep and not with goats, but he's going to be coming back with an army. And so he's really covering his backside here by making this... um, making this covenant. Laban's thinking here is not, uh, hey man, let's be friends. Laban realizes that he has to let Jacob Jacob go. And there's a very real possibility seeing how mad Jacob is right now that he's going to come back with an army from his father and is going to wipe me out. So Jacob is, he's strong enough to get away with the power of his God. Imagine what would happen if Jacob came back with his God and and with an army from the land of Isaac. Uh, Laban, is he's covering his bases, uh, and it's, it's easy to see. He doesn't want Jacob to come back to kill him. Now, I love verse, 40, verse 53. It says, The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. Is still Laban talking. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Laban swore... By all the gods that he could think of, really. Uh, Abraham's God, which was, of course, indeed Jacob's God. Uh, Nahor, if you remember, was Abraham's brother. Uh, and you remember when God called Abraham out of, out of the land, uh, Mesopotamia, he, he, they served other gods. And the God of their father, their father, Nahor and Ab- Abraham's father was Terah. He worshiped the moon god from which, you know, that was which Abraham was called out. So Laban is pulling all the gods out so that this covenant they're making is more binding. I guess he thinks it is. Uh, but we get to we get to see a little inkling of faith here in Jacob, who, who doesn't swear by all these other gods. What does he do? He swears by the fear of his father Isaac. And there's that name of God again, the fear of Isaac. So you see that Jacob is indeed uh, being changed. He is, we, he, he's, not, he's not there yet, but God is moving him He doesn't swear by all these other gods. He swears by the fear of his father, Isaac. Verse 54, it says, And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread, and he spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned home. God used this entire episode to to push Jacob to the point where he would have to trust God. Jacob is content simply to to sneak away in the dark from Laban and never see him again and not have to deal with it, not have to worry about it. But that was not God's plan. God's plan was to show his power, to show his might in not only removing Jacob from Laban, but doing it in such a way that Laban and all his family now know that there is a true and powerful God who is to be feared and who has the power to keep his word. That is what we are called to do in this life. We're we're called to glorify the name of God and to show him to the world, not to sneak away from our, our trials and tribulations that are being used by God to change us, but to show who our God is. We are called to present the power and the glory of Christ in everything that we do. If it, it won't do just to sit in the shadows and hope that we avoid all conflict and all trial. Those are the very things that God uses to grow his people and to glorify his name. God wasn't about to let Jacob just slink away in the night uh, and, and lay even wake up one morning and say, you know, they left without saying a word. I wonder where they went. God is is going to continue to grow Jacob, and we're going to see that as we walk through this. 
Jacob has now, he, he's now really gotten out of the frying pan, but he is most certainly headed for the fire. He is now on his way back home. And remember what's waiting for him there. It's his brother Esau, the same brother that promised he was going to kill him the last time they were together. God is bringing Jacob from one trial to the next. And we're going to see the same old Jacob try to plan, strategize his way out of it. That is until God shows up and changes Jacob, not just from the outside, but from the inside. And that's how we must be changed from the inside. We must be born again. And then that leads to glorifying the name of God and the name of Christ in everything that we do and being uh, being overt about uh, about showing our God to the world.